One of the biggest lessons that I've learned over the course of making this film was how the more stuff that I pulled out and the simpler that I made the film, the more compelling it became. Welcome to Rough Cut. I'm Jenny Butler. And I'm Sky Dylan Robbins. Jenny, it's episode 22. Can't believe it. Yeah, it's crazy. Season two is almost over. It's 2020 and I feel like everything's just going by so quickly. And and we just got done with Sundance, right? We've been hearing lots of updates. Lots of updates from our filmmaker friends. And mm-hmm. don't you think it's just, I'm so excited for everyone that was a part of Sundance this totally. year. Because it's such a crazy thing to make a film. Yes, yes. 100%. You must just feel so much, so justified Oh, yeah. The struggle is real and everyone feels it. putting in that struggle and putting in that risk and... And maybe getting one of those puffy jackets. And maybe getting... Yes, definitely. (laughs) I think that's a guarantee, getting one of those puffy jackets. And that's really why people go. I think so. 120,000 people passing through Park City. I mean, you got to get something, right? Yeah, you got to get something. It's torture. (laughs) Um, But who, who do we have on today? Uh, our guest today, his name is Luke Lawrenson, and he premiered his film Midnight Family at Sundance last year. It got theatrical distribution in December. But I wanted to talk to him because I felt like he did a particularly brave thing by making this film. It's it's a verite film. It's shot in Mexico City. It's about a family that runs a private ambulance. And he shot it all himself using two cameras and only one type of lens. And he actually ended up winning an award at Sundance for the cinematography. And it's beautifully shot. It's amazing. It's really wonderful. And he did it over the course of three years in this obviously very hectic environment of shooting in an ambulance. And we talk about how he was able to manage that and anticipate the kind of challenges he would face over that time. Mm. It was fascinating. It sure is. I mean, you know, in journalism, right, we talk about one man banding it. And and obviously that translates to documentary as well. But to direct and shoot a feature yourself and have to think about all of those different things at once is just an amazing thing. And then to be able to finish it and bring it, bring it to, you know, a place like Sundance. I mean, what an amazing story to. Yeah, it's incredible. Luke is now based in San Francisco. He called in and we talked about his journey on this film and what he's learned. And it was a fascinating conversation. Well, I can't wait for everyone to hear it. And then watch Midnight Family. Can we see it yet uh, publicly? I believe it's out of theaters, but it's going to be streaming hopefully this spring. So stay tuned. All right, right, y'all. Yeah, stay tuned. And with that, Jenny, take it away. Let's hear the interview. This is Luke Lawrenson, and you're listening to Rough Cut. Hey, I'm Stephanie Strauss. I'm a video producer, director, and sometimes shooter. And I'm here to tell you about Musicbed. Musicbed has made it easier than ever for you to find the song you're looking for. With intuitive and easy-to-use browse and search, amazing indie artists and bands, incredible composers like Ryan Taubert and Chad Lawson, and thousands of songs to choose from. To create your free account and learn more, go to musicbed.com. Plus, as a Rough Cut listener, you'll get a one-month subscription for free, or 20% off a single song license. Just enter promo code ROUGHCUT when you check out. 
How did you get into filmmaking and when did you decide that you wanted to make verite films? I, I started first making films when I was in um, like fourth or fifth grade. I, I was a really big skateboarder and just the whole kind of culture and community of skateboarding is so intertwined with um, maybe not like necessarily filmmaking, but filming. Um, so every kind of afternoon after school, my friends and I would go skate and we would film ourselves and, and I would start to put together these montages of, um, of those kind of skate sessions. And then little by little started to just like find myself, you know, fall in love with the process. And I started to kind of look to tell stories that weren't just skateboarding. There was, I guess there was like an eagerness in me to just kind of start making films. And I felt that the whole world of fiction filmmaking was just like really off limits. Like I just didn't have people around me that were acting. I didn't have people around me who were screenwriting, but like I did have a camera and I had ideas and docs just felt like this place where I could just kind of go off on my own and start making films. Um, Hmm. Why did you decide to go into Verite docs specifically? Like why were you interested in that? I just feel like it comes down to this really fundamental um, idea of showing and not telling. And I feel like there are so many documentaries that seem like they're put together because a filmmaker found like an amazing story. And then the filmmaking kind of came second. Um, Yeah. And I tried to do it kind of the other way around where I think about the filmmaking and I think about the types of scenes and the types of, kind of visual language and and approach that I want and then find a story that can be told that way. Um, and Verte is, you know, scene-based storytelling. It's storytelling that's taking a viewer and putting them in the middle of a moment and it's present tense and it's visceral. And I think when done well, really gives people, um, you know, an experience that's close to life. Um, and not every story can be told that way. And there's, you know, obviously so many um, stories that need to be told in different ways. But for me, the, it, the process of giving viewers kind of a real experience in the moment is really special. Mm. You shot this film yourself. Can you talk about some of the challenges of being a one person crew and shooting in like a chaotic environment, like an ambulance? I mean, I'm sure there's, a lot of challenges to talk about. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of challenges, but there's also something really simple about being a one person crew. Um, I think like once you've kind of figured out the logistics and figured out the equipment, like there's this goal of getting to a place where it's all about kind of your relationship and your you know, not invisible presence, but you can kind of transcend the film crew experience. Like I've worked on other projects where I'll be like shooting a really intimate scene and like a production assistant will be in the background, like smoking a cigarette. (laughs) It's just like, you don't worry about the kind of apparatus that you've put together um, getting in the way. Um, You can really try to transcend that. Have you seen crews get in the way and really like change the mood of, of something before? Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. If if not, um, well, in, in multiple ways, not just like 
the physical logistics of moving a big crew around. But with the ambulance and, and Midnight Family, you know, I was only responsible for myself. And I think that played out not just in um, a day-to-day uh, kind of way of when I started and when I ended, but there were big emotional and ethical questions that I could be responsible for. And so I could know when to push and I could know when to kind of turn the camera off and basing the film in kind of a firm set of ethics was really, really important and would have been tough to do with many people involved. Hmm. You were shooting with two cameras. I mean, when you watch this film, it really looks like you have a full crew. Can you talk about your camera setup? Yeah, I shot with two cameras, not every night, but maybe um, half or like two thirds of the time. And they were both Sony FS7s. And I I would mount one on the hood of the ambulance. So it would film whoever is you know driving or sitting in the front it was kind of just a locked off shot through the windshield and then i had a second camera with me in the back of the ambulance and that one was was you know free to shoot all sorts of different stuff and i had this kind of like start and stop cable from the hood mountain camera that would go into the back of the ambulance so i could turn that one on and off um but just like, you know, the radiator and the ambulance leaked. So like every couple hours, I would have to take that whole rig off so they could put water into the into the radiator. And it would take like oh about God. half an hour to put it back on. And just like the amount of just like duct tape and like ratchet straps and those things <laughs> that went into getting that camera to kind of feel locked down was, was um, it took weeks, honestly, to, to figure it all out. What did the Ochoa family say? Were they concerned that that was going to kind of get in the way of their work? And also just as a patient, being in an ambulance is kind of a private thing and having cameras around, I'm sure, just raised some concerns. Yeah, I mean, there there's a lot of different layers to that question. I, I think, you know, I, I shot in the ambulance for maybe 100 nights um, and there was only one night in that whole experience where someone other than the Achawa family got into the front of the ambulance. Um, and that happened in the first week that I was with them. And I ended up filming what is the last scene in the film, which for those of you who have seen it is this incredibly overwhelming um, situation. And it, you know, was a moment where the camera was rolling and the mother of a really critical patient gets in the front of the ambulance and and I filmed the journey from the accident to the hospital. And I just, I had set the camera up on the hood um, as my only camera for that night. And this was a moment where I was just trying to get a sense of what being in this ambulance would be like. And I kind of, you know, had assumed that that one hood mountain camera would only be filming, you know, the, the driver and the EMTs, but was wrong in that moment. Um, and felt really uncomfortable with how that whole night had kind of gone down and how it had been filmed. And I almost deleted this footage the next day, but um, kind of held on to it and thought about it and eventually showed it to an old film professor of mine who encouraged me to go and find that mother. Um, and so about six months after this mother um, had gone through this incredibly traumatic moment. I went and knocked on the door of her house and spent, she let me in and I spent a couple hours talking with her about 
the ambulance and the story I was trying to tell. And her daughter had been studying um, journalism. And so she gave me permission to use, use the scene, um, which was just like this unbelievably overwhelming conversation, but a, a really intense lesson in coming up with ways to connect with the families and the patients that were coming in and out of this ambulance and um, kind of taught me loud and clear rather early on in the process that if I was kind of thoughtful and um, curious, I, I could find people that were really willing to share their stories. And I think there was a much larger percentage of people that were okay with these scenes being filmed than I ever expected. So going back to your kind of question about being a one person crew, there, there, there were a lot of really important ways in which I needed to be totally out of the way. And I thought a lot about that. And I, I think came up with the places that I could be and the places that I couldn't be. And, you know, the moments in which I just needed to turn the camera off, even if a scene felt compelling or felt like it was the right scene for the film, but not the right thing ethically or just emotionally. Um, so it was a very, very unpredictable shoot. And I had to have, you know, a really strict sense of right and wrong, despite the film itself being about how difficult right and wrong are to understand and process. Mm-hmm. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. I read this interview with you where you said that a vast majority of the footage that you shot doesn't actually like resemble what the film looks like. Why is that? And can you talk about the process of learning to navigate the conditions that you're shooting in? Yeah. You know, I think in a lot of ways, the journey of making this film was the journey of me learning how to make a film. And there was so much footage that I shot early on that wasn't working and just wasn't as compelling or, um, you know, didn't feel like I knew the film could feel. And what kind of saved me was that the Achawa family would get in their ambulance every single night and kind of did the same thing. You know, it was a very repetitive routine and that allowed me to kind of try things, have them fail, try something else, have it fail without kind of losing the whole story. Um, I had these, you know, many, many chances to try and get it right. So whether that was just like the lens I was using or where the camera was mounted or, you know, what sort of color temperature I was using or like, you know, very big things down to specific things. You know, if I was going to shoot any handheld, if the whole film was going to be on a tripod, different seats that I would be in the ambulance. Um, and and I so I just slowly put together a very, very specific list of shots that were allowed and a list of shots that weren't allowed. And when I say allowed, I'm just thinking kind of creatively, like what was going to be in the film and what wasn't. And by the end of it, there was maybe only, you know, 10 or 15 frames that make up the whole film. And we return to these same frames over and over and something new happens every time we kind of return to them, but they are kind of the backbone of the film's visual language. Um, Is that just logistically like those were the spaces that you could shoot in in the ambulance or was that like a calculated decision to have it be visually consistent in that way i think more the latter of of really wanting the film to be this kind of tight um highly composed experience for viewers and knowing that 
there were types of shots that would kind of throw that off. Um, and I didn't want, you know, the, the, the story in the space is, is already so chaotic and intense. I, I wanted the filmmaking to kind of organize it for the, for the viewer so that they could be, you know, really experiencing it in a close intimate way instead of this kind of all over the map chaotic way. Hmm. What wasn't working about that earlier footage? So it's so many different things that there are more people in the family than there are in the film. Um, so there was earlier footage with characters that were really compelling, but didn't, didn't fit into the web of the story in kind of a concise way. Um, I, I think one of the biggest lessons that I've learned over the course of, of making this film was that I, I was continuously surprised by how little I needed to tell this story and how the more stuff that I pulled out and the simpler that I made the film, the more compelling it became. And earlier cuts of the film, I was trying to infuse so many different layers, so many different characters and ideas and context um, that it just, it never really came together. And I had these scenes um, that would be like really compelling and interesting on their own, but didn't contribute to the scenes that came before them or the scenes that came after them. And it was really this treasure hunt to find the kind of 15 moments in the film that all build on each other in a really kind of linear way. Um, Verte can be just so open and so up for kind of interpretation that you need a really tight connection between scenes for the viewer to have kind of a cohesive experience. Um, mm. And that was something that took me a long time to learn. Did you have an editor that you were collaborating with that helped you kind of discover that? Or was like, did you have help? I, I did have help. I, you know, when we first started to edit, we hired an editor who was based in Mexico city, Paloma Lopez um, Garillo. And she um, came into the footage just with fresh eyes. And she was kind of grew up in Mexico city and, and we worked for about four or five months together and just the film just never quite got to where I, I wanted it to. I, I didn't know that at the time we, we thought at that, at the end of the time with Plomo, we thought we had a finished film and we locked picture, we submitted it to Sundance and we got rejected. And um, my producer and I kind of had this conversation where he essentially asked me, he was like, you know, I think we have, a good film and we can, you know, continue submitting it to other festivals, but is it really the film that you wanted to make from the beginning? Mm -hmm. And we ultimately decided that we were going to kind of pull all our, of our festival submissions and keep working. And the first step to that was going back to the Achoas to keep shooting. And in the kind of two week shoot that I went back to do, I ended up shooting about 75% of what you see in the final film. Wow. What wasn't working about that first film? I mean, was it, was it what you just described where it was kind of going in too many directions? I think it was exactly that. I think I kind of came into this world of the Achoa's ambulance and I was surprised and interested in so many different things. And it mm -hmm. took a couple of years for those that kind of um, those interests to solidify into kind of a single thesis. Um, 
you know, I'm a big believer in this idea of kind of asking people or asking myself, what is this film about? And if I can't answer it in, you know, half a sentence, um, then there's a lot of thinking that needs to be done. I, I just, an 80 to 90 minute experience is so quick and so concise, at least with this type of film, um, that it, it took me a couple of years to be able to answer that question. And the moment that I could and could then think about how every scene in the film contributed to kind of this one single idea, um, that was the moment when the film finally started to work. Hmm. So there were probably a lot of different thematic directions you could have gone in with this with this one family and this one story. How did you settle on this this one avenue to go down? Was it just most interesting to you or Yeah, you know, I I knew from really early on that um I wanted the film to explore some of the ethical and be like the ethical ambiguity and complexities of this family business. Um you know, this, the basic story is a, is a family in Mexico City that runs a for-profit ambulance. And you kind of see throughout the film how their need to kind of put food on the table um, in a way comes into conflict with their ability to treat people properly. And you see money kind of getting in the way of care being delivered the way you might hope it could be. So I knew from early on that I wanted to explore that, but there are just so many different ways in which ethical lines and ethical complexity comes into the work. And it ultimately came down to figuring out what the most intense example of that is and kind of focusing on that. So for me, that was um, the way in which they work with private hospitals. Um, I felt like that was the most kind of glaring and clear example of how finances and a need to keep this business afloat affected the treatment of patients. And so each accident in the film kind of sets up the next accident and it all builds to a place um, where in the last accident, it all, you know, it all kind of comes to a breaking point. Um, And so, you know, over the course of this two and a half year shoot, I was really just looking for five to six accidents that, that had, you know, a a certain charisma between them that built on itself, that kind of made this boiling pot of ethics build and build and build. Hmm. Um, But at at the same time, I needed, you know, the same 17-year-old in the family to be at the center of each of those scenes, which wasn't always obvious. I needed the father to also be there. You know, there were just like all of these different layers that needed to happen for the scene to be usable in the way that I, that I wanted. Yeah. It needed the characters that you settled on and to tie into this theme that you were going for. Right. And yeah. Uh, Like a really good scene operates on multiple levels, right? It's like, it's, it's not just moving a story forward. It's telling you something new about the character, potentially also something about the context. And it's also, you know, emotionally engaging. It's just like, in you just, you kind of have this rubric and you need to be able to check all the boxes on the rubric for the scene to be, you know, to be a good scene. And, and in the earlier cut, I had great scenes that were just operating on kind of one or two levels, but not mm. the kind of depth of three or four, five, six levels, um, mm. which is, which is what I was hoping for. I, I imagine it took so much patience. I mean, filmmaking in general, 
requires so much patience, but verite filmmaking, you kind of just have to like stick around and wait for the magic to happen. Did that ever test your patience? Um, (laughs) Yeah, it, it does take an enormous amount of patience. Um, You know, I, I think one of the big lessons of making this film was how valuable that patience is and how, when you really give a story the time that it needs, it will kind of become something that you never imagined it could be. And I think now I'm actually far more comfortable with the patience and less comfortable with, you know, finding a story that for whatever reason needs to be done quickly. And I think there's kind of a balance between the two worlds, but I, I think observational filmmaking is just cannot be rushed. And mm-hmm. we're in a day and age where the money and the resources and the studios that are interested in these types of films are growing and growing and growing. And I, I worry that it's, you know, asking these sorts of things to be rushed and kind mm-hmm. of commodi- commoditized in a way that is going to be really tough. Mm-hmm. You shot this film on a 24 millimeter lens Was it ever frustrating to not be able to zoom? I mean, especially in these moments where, you know, it's very fast paced, it may not be appropriate to get physically close to the action in an an ambulance, or you may not have time. Yeah. And, you know, it's a good question. And I think I'm I'm kind of getting geared up for another film. And I'm thinking about this a lot, not being able to zoom in on something forced me to think a bit more actively about why a shot needed to be what it was. And if I needed a close-up, I would have to physically get there. And that was important. I think it added this extra step into the types of shots that were going to be allowed in the film. So, you know, if I wanted to get closer to a patient, which only happens a few times in the film, um, I would have to kind of that would be a really kind of intense moment and it would be really intense for the viewers as well. Zooming in, it's kind of a crutch in a way. Mm-hmm. It lets you get shots that in some ways aren't real. You know, the camera is doing something with, you know, kind of this magnification of a moment, but it's not replicating a human experience of, of closeness and intimacy. It's, and that comes across, you know, I think when you kind of zoom in on something it magnifies it, but it still feels kind of far away. Um, and I wanted to avoid that. I wanted to push myself to physically participate in every shot in the same way and be equally close all the time, um, which definitely posed challenges. I missed a lot of stuff because, because I couldn't zoom in, but um, it ultimately, I think, gave the film a very cohesive look. Hmm. You were saying that, you know, there are a lot of advantages to shooting on your own, just in terms of like access and intimacy. Mm -hmm. Did you ever wish that you had like a creative collaborator with you to like shoot ideas off of or? So I I did have like my producer, Kellen Quinn is someone who is involved in every single decision of this film. In terms of on set, it's, it's a really tough question. I think, there are times when I just want to go into my cocoon and not listen to anybody and just respond to my own instincts. And sometimes that produces really good work, but then sometimes I really need 
um, people around me to push me in different directions for that to happen. So there were different phases in Midnight Family where um, collaboration versus isolation. And after I came back from that last shoot that I was telling you about where I shot about 75% of the film, I then went down to edit and didn't really talk to anybody for like two to three months. And I just cut mm -hmm. entirely on my own. And I think that's because we had gone through this really difficult period before that shoot where there were so many people weighing in. I was working with Paloma and Kellen and we had these other producers and there were just like all of these ideas getting thrown around and we were trying to incorporate all of them into the film and it was just kind of crumbling. And so I came back from that last shoot and I was like, I know what this film needs to be about. And I just need to kind of go into my own space and try to make it work. And I, I didn't know if it was going to, but I needed to try. And that, you know, ultimately ended up being the most productive, like three months of the whole film. Well, it's such a wonderful film. So thank you so much for doing this, Luke. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jenny Butler. Sky Dylan Robbins is our co-producer. George Itzak is our booking producer. Hansdale Sue does our audio mix. And our original music is by Zach Wright. And Rough Cut is a part of the Video Consortium, which is a creative community of the world's top emerging nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists. We're scattered all around the globe, and we have chapters in New York, L.A., San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Milan, Paris, and with many more to come. If you want to join and become a member, check us out at videoconsortium.com. And if you want to learn more about Rough Cut, go to roughcutpodcast.com, visit us on Instagram at roughcutpodcast, and go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review, subscribe, and rate our show. <laughs>